Well, as Jeff pointed out this morning, Acts chapter 16 records the, the birth of the Philippian church. It's an intriguing historical account as God began to open the eyes of those in Philippi whom he was saving. We saw that Paul preached to Lydia. If you noticed, as they were going out to find a place of prayer, they preached to Lydia, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to that gospel. And the gospel begins to have a powerful impact in the city of Philippi, and immediately, as we saw, there was opposition to that gospel and to those who preached it. Paul is being followed around by a slave girl who has a demon, and she has the spirit of divination, and she is fortune-telling, and there are people making money off of her labors, and Paul commands that demon out of that woman, setting her free. And that made those who were using her not too happy. The gospel had hit them where it counts, in their bank account. And they then bring Paul and Silas before the governing authorities, and it sets off a chain of events. The crowd rises up against them, and they strip Paul and Silas, and then they beat them with rods, and they put them in stocks, and they take them into the inner jail. And then we see that the Philippian jailer is converted as well after the earthquake. And then, of course, there's Paul's unwillingness to be set free until those who had wrongly beaten them came and opened the door themselves for Paul to get out. And there's a very public mea culpa. And the Philippians, to whom Paul writes in Philippians 1 know all this history. Many of them were there. They saw it. They understood all of this. They knew that their salvation came as a direct result of the suffering of Christ's messengers. Their salvation was tightly linked to the suffering of Paul and Silas and even now, this letter is coming to the Philippian church from Paul, who is sitting in prison, who is suffering yet again, not knowing whether he will live or die. Things are pretty desperate. And what Paul wants to make clear to these Philippians is that salvation and suffering go hand in hand. You never have one without the other. That is the way it is in God's kingdom, that suffering and salvation are inseparably linked, and we must embrace one as well as the other. Let's read together from Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, as we come to this final section. We heard a couple of weeks ago, verses 27 and 28 explained, but I want to begin reading again because these all go together. Paul writes, by the Holy Spirit, only conduct yourselves, Philippians, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is the first commandment given in this entire text so far, in this entire book so far. We get all the way to verse 27, and we see that first commandment given. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, 
in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For it is, or for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, which is a direct reference to all that we read in Acts 16, and now here to be in me in my present imprisonment. The emphasis of this section really is the unity of the church of Philippi, and he will continue into chapter 2 on that same theme. But what you see here is that Paul has called them first and foremost to be united in conduct. They are to conduct themselves, they are to behave in a certain way, in a certain manner, and that manner is one that is worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We notice that they did that really in three ways that are brought out in the text. First, they should stand united in their standing for the faith. They were to stand firm in one spirit for the faith. That was a defensive posture, we said. They were to defend the truth. They were to live the truth. They were to protect the truth. They were to guard the treasure. They were to stand firm on the foundation of Christ and of his word. Secondly, they were to stand united, striving together. They were to serve the Lord with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This was the offensive posture of the church. They were to go out and strive together for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final point we were making two weeks ago was that they were to stand united in suffering. Paul says in verse 28 that they were in no way to be alarmed by their opponents. And that word alarmed had to do with a, a pack of horses. They were not to be flighty or to be somehow scared and, and stampeding off at the, at the face of trial and trouble. No, they were not to be alarmed in any way by their opponents. And Paul tells us that that fact that they were being opposed was a sign of destruction for their opponents, but a sign of salvation for them, and that it was from God, ultimately. So suffering for Christ is a sign of your salvation. It is a sign of judgment for those who oppose you and oppose your message. And what is so shocking about today's message, I hope you underline it, highlight it, put an asterisk by it, put something in the margin because we just don't tend to think much about this reality. But Paul states it here in about as concise a way as possible. Suffering for, for Christ's sake is a gift of God. It is something that comes to you directly from God as an expression of his grace to you. And that is not the way we tend to think about suffering, is it? That's contrary to common sense. We are a culture, we are a church, speaking generally here in America, that tends to want to flee any kind of struggle, any kind of strife, any type of challenging situation. We don't want to be spoken evil of. We don't want to suffer in the ways that we see exposed in the scriptures that so many suffered from the prophets through the apostles and all the way to the early church. 
Paul is telling the Philippians they are to suffer together for Christ's sake. That is a gift of God. That it is a double grace. That is the double grace of this passage. The grace of salvation and the grace of suffering. Look at verse 29 with me. Note that Paul begins with the word for. That is a word that connects to all that he's been saying, particularly in verse 28 when he talks about these opponents and the, the, the struggle that, that they're inevitably going to incur when they engage gospel ministry in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. That you is plural. That is to say to all the church. Not just the elders and the deacons. Not just to the, the preacher. Not just to a select few within the church. But to all of them. To the Philippians in, 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 in the plural. It has been granted. That is charizomai. Charis is the word for grace. We have been graced, he says. You have received something passively. It is a grace. You are a recipient of this unmerited favor from God. And what is that favor? It is to suffer for his sake. That is a badge of honor, brothers and sisters, to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. God does good to his people. And he does good to his people, not because we are deserving, but in spite of us. And it is his nature to be kind. It is his nature to be merciful to the unworthy. And one expression of his kindness to us is the faith to believe the gospel. We love that. But there is another expression in this text. And that is suffering. And I want you to note that he says here that what we are granted, we are granted for Christ's sake. For his honor. For his glory. For his praise. Jesus Christ is the hub of human history. He is central to everything. Everything is from him and through him and to him. To him be glory forever and ever, says Romans 11.36. And you have been graced. I have been graced. We have been doubly graced. And all of that for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You remember when we were studying back in Ephesians that the grace that God gave you in saving you was to the praise of the glory of his grace. That was the ultimate purpose. We were not the end of our salvation. As delightful as it is to us, the ultimate end of our salvation is to the praise of the God who saved us. So it is with our suffering. And Paul wants us to take our thoughts off of ourselves. He wants us to see Christ, both in our salvation and in our suffering. And this morning, we will center this message around just two heads, and that is, I want you to see two graces that come from God. Two graces that come from God. And the first is the grace of salvation. Look with me again at verse 29. For to you, to you all, it has been graced or granted for Christ's sake, and then Paul says, not only to believe in him, now, what is the implication of that statement? It is clearly that it has been granted to us to believe in him. 
And the way Paul puts it here, it's almost incidental. It's not really his point. He wants to get to the issue of suffering. That's what he's really talking about. But he says, while I'm in there, I ought to point you to this reality because it serves to motivate our suffering. And he says, you have been graced to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is amazing to me is that you speak those words in so many churches today that salvation is of the Lord, that it is of his initiative and his doing, and and the man in the pulpit better duck. Do you see that Paul here almost incidentally says, you know about the gift of your salvation, right? How that was granted to you as a gift? It's as if Paul is just assuming that everyone in the building just gets this fact. There's no need to to further develop it. Brothers and sisters, listen, nothing could be clearer from the pages of Scripture than that the reality of faith in Christ, your faith in Christ, my faith in Christ, any man's faith in Christ, is a gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God. The Bible teaches that it was before the foundation of the world, before you ever took your first breath, that God chose you for salvation. Ephesians 1.3, he, God, chose us in him. That's where the decisive priority rests. It is with God, not with man. It is God who wills, not man. In Jesus' own words, what did he say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John said it this way, we love, why? Because he first loved us. Protos, first. The prototype of love is God's, not, not from us, but from him. It came down, not up. Beloved, salvation is of the Lord, says the man who spent a night or three in the belly of the fish. And it is by his divine initiative. We would never have loved God. We would have never have chosen God. We would have never have come to God. We would have never have believed in God. Apart from his grace, apart from his mercy, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, who who turned your heart to be inclined to the glory of the gospel message. It occurs to me whenever I preach on God's predestinating grace, his mercy, his election, when I preach on it, I'm always awed at the thought, why did God, human beings struggle with this to such a great extent, why did God give us a glimpse behind the curtain? Why did he even give us an insight to the inner workings of all of this? And the answer is because our salvation is to the praise of Christ's glory. God wants the glory for your salvation. Let him who boasts, boast where? In the Lord. These things should thrill our soul and cause us to rise up and call God blessed. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And people will try to play all kinds of funny games with the word that. Listen, I don't know whether it's the grace, the salvation, or the faith. My inclination is to believe that it's all of it. All of that comes from God. Does it matter? Any one of the three would be enough, wouldn't it? 
All of that is a gift of God and all of that that it might humble us that we would look to him as the great savior, the author and perfecter of our faith. Regeneration, that is your new birth, precedes faith and it produces faith. And this this is a glimpse really into that invisible work that God has done in bringing your salvation to fruition. And when God makes alive a dead soul, he gives the gift of faith. He gives the gift of faith. You genuinely believed. Your heart was inclined to entrust to Christ, but all of that, again, is the result of God's mighty work within us. And faith and repentance are always tied together. In repentance, the sinner turns away from his sin, away from his self, away from any self-sufficiency. And in faith, the sinner then turns from himself to God for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. And the point is here that faith and repentance are always coupled together. They are flip sides of the same coin, and they both come from God. Listen to these texts. You can just jot the reference down. I'll give them to you. First of all, God grants repentance. He gives you the gift of repentance. Acts 5.31. God there grants repentance, the scripture says, to Israel. But it's not just Israel. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. God then has, here's a bunch of Jews reflecting on the reality that Cornelius and his family were saved. And well, they're not Jews and God is saving Gentiles. That was a shocking reality to them. And they say this in Acts 18, or 11, 18. God then has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Romans 2.4 He confronts the arrogant by saying, don't you understand that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 speaks about two types of sorrow. One that's a sorrow according to the world. The other is a sorrow or a repentance, if you will, according to the will of God. That is a a genuine repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 says that those who are held captive by the devil must be granted repentance from God. Not only is repentance a gift from God, faith is a gift of God. Acts 3.16 tells us that Christ is the mediator of a gift of faith, that it comes through him. Acts 13 and verse 48 says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they believe? Because they'd been appointed to eternal life. Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened, we saw this, Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. In Hebrews 12, 2, we read that Jesus is the author, that word means the source or the creator and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 2.10, we read that Jesus is the author of our salvation. He is the source of it, the creator of it, the initiator of it. James 1, 17 to 18, every good and perfect gift comes from where? Is your salvation a good gift? It is. Where does every good and perfect gift come from? From the Father of lights, right? And, and, and right there on the, in the next verse, it says it's by the exercise of his will that he brought us forth by the word of truth. 
2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. You must receive faith. Beloved, this is why you're a believer. God granted it to you. God gave it to you as a gift. God chose you in eternity past. And he has worked everything out so that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have him to praise for that. He could have left you to your own devices you would have never chosen, never followed, never believed. But he worked a mighty work of salvation in your life. It wasn't because you were more noble. It wasn't because you possessed greater wisdom or because you were mightier or greater than other people. No, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. There we go again. It comes back to the same issue, doesn't it? We are humbled by this reality that God grants us faith to believe. Paul sums that whole section up in 1 Corinthians by simply saying this. It is by his doing, God's doing, that you are in Christ Jesus. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, it might have been incidental for Paul. I spent more time on it, I suppose, than he wanted to, but I trust it was helpful and encouraging to you. This is a message really about two gifts. It's a double grace message. Not only has God given us the grace to believe in Christ, but he's also given us the grace of suffering for Christ. And I want you to consider with me that grace, the grace of suffering. Remember, this comes on the heels of verse 28 where he's told them he doesn't want them in any way to be alarmed by the opposition they're going to face. There is no need for fear. There's no need for anxiety. There's no need for alarm when you face opposition. Why? Because that same good and gracious God who granted you salvation is the same gracious and good God who mets out the suffering that you will encounter in this life and all of that by his restraint. Do you remember Job? Satan comes before him and God says, fine, you think he fears me and praises me and worships me for nothing? I'll tell you what, you can have Job, but you can't touch him. You can only touch his stuff. So Satan takes his stuff. Job says, skin for skin, he didn't curse you, but he'll curse you if you let me at him. God says, fine, you can touch Job, but you can't take his life. Who's setting the parameters of Job's suffering? Right? He sets the parameter of our suffering as well. This good and gracious God who graciously saved you also has graciously allotted a certain measure of suffering in your life as you live for Christ. It's from his hands. And he not only allows suffering, that's the language we like to use. The, the, the picture Paul paints here is that God doesn't just allow it, he ordains it. Verse 29, let's see the words with our own eyes. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That is a package deal, friends. That is a twofer. 
And God does not send his children out empty-handed. In your right hand, he has given you salvation. He's given you faith to believe. But in your left hand, he has, he has given you the gift of suffering in the footsteps of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what this verse teaches us really is what the rest of Scripture teaches us about suffering as God's children. Christian suffering, and, and, and this is a little mini outline within our outline, really can, can sort of be tied up in this, that Christian suffering is normal, it is personal, and it is profitable. It is normal, it is personal, and it is profitable. Suffering for Christ's sake is normal. It is not incidental to the Christian life. It is fundamental. It is universal. It is the experience not of some of God's children. It is the experience of all of God's children. And I know it's easy to sit and listen to a message like this, and you envision prisoners who are in orange jumpsuits for their, for their faith in Christ kneeling on some, some beach in Egypt. You think of, of the Marian martyrs at the stake. You think of the voice of the Martyrs magazine and you hear about all the brutal things that so many of our brethren throughout the world are, are going through. That is suffering for Christ in the most bold and extreme way. But the vast, vast, vast majority of suffering for Christ is not that kind of calling. My hope as we read through these passages as you encounter this is that you'll be able to say, you know what? I have suffered for Christ. And that that ought to be a joy to your heart. Flip over with me to, to, to the book of Matthew. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. We'll just look at a couple of passages. We'll pick up at the end of the Beatitudes. We preached through this some time ago. And you'll remember that what what the Lord is laying out in the Beatitudes are those very characteristics of those who have been regenerated, those who are believers, those who trust the Lord. This, this is the character of a Christian. They mourn over their sin. They're poor in spirit. They're spiritually poor. They realize they have nothing to offer the Lord in and of themselves. They're, they're gentle. They, they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. Christians are merciful people. They're pure in heart and they're peacemakers. And on the heels of all of that discussion about the nature of a true Christian, Jesus speaks these words, blessed, makarios, happy, joyful, rejoicing, are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just take this text as an example of those three things I said about suffering in the Bible. Is suffering normal? Yes. Verse 11, blessed are you when you're insulted. Not if you're insulted. Insult is coming your way. You publicly identify yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be insulted. You live a life by the power of the Spirit of God in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. You love what he loves and hate what he hates. You will be insulted. It is guaranteed. Bless are you when. 
people insult you. It's normal. It's also personal. Notice that they're falsely, in verse 11, saying all kinds of evil against you. Why? It's because of me, Jesus says. This is personal. This is because of me. This isn't because of you so much as me. This, the issue is me. Verse 10 and 12 tells us that this is also profitable. We're told, blessed are you. We ought to rejoice and be glad. Why? Because there's great profit coming to you. Your reward in heaven is great. You see, this is the pattern of New Testament suffering. We could see it in the book of 1 Peter if we were to go there. Paul is echoing this very thing before the Philippians. He is saying to them, look, suffering is normal. It is a grace that comes that accompanies the grace of salvation. Like I said, one in the right hand, one in the left. Beloved, didn't Jesus say, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of what? Wolves. You will be hated, Jesus says, because of my name. Didn't he tell us, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world will hate you. Didn't the Lord Jesus assure us, if they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you? Paul spoke with the same kind of certainty, didn't he? All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Join me, Paul says, in suffering like a good soldier. Peter shepherded the flock of his day, the suffering churches in his day. 1 Peter 2.21, for you have been called for this purpose. You have a calling. What's the calling? Here it is. The calling is this, since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. Christ's pathway is a pathway of suffering, and we've been called to what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him through that narrow gate and down that narrow path. 1 Peter 4.1, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, do you see it again? We're following Christ. He says, arm yourself with the same purpose. Be ready. Don't be surprised. In fact, that's just what he tells us later in chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Didn't Jesus and Peter and Paul, in fact, all the Old Te New Testament authors, tell us in various ways how to respond when we are suffering at the hands of others for our faith? Turn the other cheek, Jesus said. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Paul writes in Romans, do not return evil for evil, but, but a blessing instead. Peter tells us, keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers as they slander you. You see, the implication of those instructions is what? This is going to be par for the course. This is the way it is for God's people. There is a cost 
to following the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a cross that must be carried. There is a reproach that must be borne because of our identity with the Lord. The world is at enmity with God. They're at war with God and God's at war with them. There is great tension. And when you go as lights into this world, you will expose darkness and the the darkness hates the light. One thing I'm hoping you'll get out of this message, just briefly, as we consider a, a lot of throwing a lot of stuff at you already. I'm hoping it will confront that mentality in us that tends to think that the pain-free life is the good life. That the trouble-free life is the God-blessed life. Isn't that always the way you hear it? God's really been blessing me. And just get ready to covet that person's experience, right? Their life's been good. More money's flowing in and the children are growing up just the way they hoped and the houses keep getting bigger. The Lord is just really blessing. We might need to rethink that. The church might need to rethink that in this country. We need to be aware of that pain-free sort of pursuit Jesus said the same thing, and he said it this way, woe to you. Those are the most serious words the Lord ever speaks. Woe to you if all men speak well of you. If nobody's cursing your name, if your testimony for Jesus is so watered down that nobody's able to differentiate either by the words you speak or by the life that you live, that you are unique, that you are different, that you are, you are, you are righteous, that you are a product of the workmanship of the Lord Jesus Christ, if nobody can see that in you, woe are you. Woe to you, Jesus says. You're a fence straddler. You don't stand for anything. You're still trying to please man and to please everybody. Your, your life is nothing but a massive question mark. You've got your finger to the wind. You've got your sails trimmed to the breeze. There's nothing distinctive about your life. You've taken that light and you've hid it under a bushel. You're a city on a hill, but you've shut out the power. If you live a public life, if you are not a covert Christian, And I think Paul's point is, there is no such thing as that. If you lead a public life of identification with the Lord Jesus Christ, and again, this isn't just by being a preacher. This is by, yes, the words you speak, the gospel you declare, but it's also the life that you lead, the way you conduct yourself, the way you've ordered your family. You should should smell like a Christian, right? Aren't we doing that? Didn't Jesus say that? Paul wrote it, I guess. But Jesus, indirectly through Paul, says to us in, in, in Corinthians, right, that we are, what, the aroma to some, we're, the, we're spreading the aroma of Christ. To some, it's for life to life, and to others, death to death. We can't help whether you smell good or you smell bad in the nose of an unbeliever. 
That's God's doing. But you should be spreading the aroma of Christ about as you seek to live and to speak in a way that honors him as we stand firm on the faith and we stride forward for the faith. We spread around the aroma of Christ. And if you do that, you will find opposition. And your suffering may be great or it may be small, but it will be. Some of you know what it is to be stigmatized and ostracized by your friends and your family. Some of you know what it is to have a child walk away and say, I'm not interested. Some of you know what it is to be slandered and some of you know what it is to be scorned in the very object of derision in a, in a social setting. It may be that we are called naive. It might be that we are, we are deemed as intellectually weak. Somebody might call you unscientific. They'll brand you as judgmental. They'll call you narrow-minded. They'll say you are behind the times. But beloved, you're none of those things. Why does it bother you so much? You're none of those things. It's just your pride that gets wounded. Right? You have the truth. You have life. Darwin is wrong. You know that? I know that that's not what's taught in the public school system to the vast majority of American school students. I get it. But truth isn't determined by majority wins. Truth isn't about what the, what the spirit of the age is or what you hear on the evening news. You have the truth. And the call is to humble yourself under that truth to bear out the love of Christ for the unbeliever who demeans you and persecutes you and despises you and mocks you, but you don't return in kind. Why? Because you're in the footsteps of your Savior. You may lose a job. You may be passed over for promotion. You may endure a beating. You may be pursued by them. That's what persecuted literally means. You're, you're chased down. You might be imprisoned. You might even suffer martyrdom. Leave that in the Lord's hands. You just live faithfully. You live out loud. You declare the glory of Christ and the wonder of the gospel which saves sinners. I went back yesterday and just looked at the language of Hebrews chapter 11. You remember that latter part. Listen, to consider the unspeakable indignities that God's people have suffered. They were, quote, tortured, mocked, scourged, in chains and imprisonment, stoned, sawn in two, Tempted, put to death with the sword, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground. And I love this, men of whom the world is not worthy. Beloved, we stand in a very, very, very long line of faithful people. Martin Lloyd-Jones called it the Grand Succession. Paul's in line with them. Look at verse 30.
He says, you've been granted grace to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. I love that. Paul says, I'm hearing of your suffering for the gospel. I'm hearing of your suffering for the name of Christ. And you know what? That means you're in the arena right with me. You saw what happened to me when I came into Philippi. You watched the whole thing unfold. That was brutal, wasn't it? You were there. You saw it. And beyond that, I'm in prison and I'm writing to you and you hear now about the situation I'm in and you're so concerned for me. I want you to know something. I'm concerned for you too. We're in the same conflict. We're fighting as a unified team in the midst of this. And he says to them, don't fret. Don't relent. Suffering is normal in the Christian life. What an encouragement that had to be to them. Well, suffering is not only normal, it's also personal. And I pointed this out that what I mean by that is this is about Jesus, not about us. This is not run-of-the-mill suffering that he's talking about. You hear some Christians speak and you think, you know, they got bronchitis and they're just suffering like the Lord said they would. That's not the point. We're suffering at the pump, man. It's rough being a Christian, right? No, that's not what he's saying. He's got a more specific type of suffering here that's gospel-related, Christ-centered. He says to suffer for his sake. That is in public identification with Christ. And I've told this to you many, many times. There's no blessing, no benefit when we are persecuted or we're spoken evil against because we've been unkind, because we are unchristlike, because we're obnoxious or tactless or disrespectful or somehow abrasive. There's no honor in all of that. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is offensive. You are not to be offensive. J.C. Ryle said, fear not the offense of men, but give no needless offense. We're not trying to be offensive. We're not trying to steel ourselves against the suffering. You remember it when you were a kid, right? And you were going to get a shot and there was that needle and your sleeve was rolled up and you went like this and you, you made it worse. <laughs> Relax. Listen, when you live for Christ, rejoice Enjoy it. Life in Christ is glorious. When you speak the truth of Christ, and I've encouraged you over and over again, you speak to the unbeliever like the unbeliever speaks to you. Right? They drop F-bombs, you drop J-bombs. You tell them about Jesus. You just get on with it. You just tell them how glad you are. I'm so thankful today to have health. The Lord Jesus has just blessed me in so many ways. I'm thankful again to be on my feet. That is the weirdest thing in the ears of an unbeliever, but we should speak like that. You're lonely? Yeah, sometimes I've experienced loneliness too, but you know what? My loneliness is largely, it's largely dissipated in life because I have the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's one who never leaves us or forsakes us. He's omnipotent and, and omnipresent. He's with us always. Beyond that, he's given me this wonderful fellowship in the church. I wish, you could, I wish you could experience it. It's incredible. Can you imagine talking to an unbeliever like that? You should. They should be envious of all that God has done for us. Charles and I were talking the other day about these churches back some time ago who, uh, they, they, they were, 
they were atheists getting together around all kinds of odd things because they saw what the church had in its fellowship. They saw that gathering of the people of God and they looked at it and they said, man, do we want that? So let's get together on Sunday morning. We'll do the hokey pokey. But somebody was offended with the hokey pokey. And they suggested that they read poems. But somebody didn't like Shakespeare, couldn't understand it. And before you knew it, the whole thing just crumbled. The glory of the church, the wonder of what God has knit us together for, for gospel purposes, to stand firm in truth, to stride forward for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to endure suffering together for his sake, that he might be glorified. Nothing speaks more loudly of the goodness of God than when we suffer at the hands of those that we are good to, that we are kind to, that we demonstrate the likeness of Christ to. That's why martyrdom has always proven to expand gospel witness, not, not to contract it. We need to anchor this in our thinking that persecution comes to us because the world still wants to persecute Christ. The world hates Christ, hates the light, hates those who share and shine that light. But I think it's critical for us to understand that, that what's coming our way and what is so painful and what, what feels so lousy at times and so demeaning at times, that reproach of Christ, if we don't understand the spiritual dynamic that's driving it, we will end up resenting, hating, resisting the unbeliever. We'll end up cowering from them ultimately. We'll just all climb, climb, climb into our, our Christian cave and hang out together. But beloved, that's not why we're here. We're here to testify of Christ. And your life, by the way you live and by the things you speak, will be very confrontational and convicting to the unbeliever. And if you don't understand that dynamic You'll just want to retaliate and your feelings will be hurt and you'll, you'll grow angry at them and bitter and you'll just retreat from battle. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be discouraged and disheartened when suffering comes our way. Think of it. John 15, 25 tells us that they hated Jesus, what? Without cause. They will do the same to you. You'll do good to them, they'll kick in your teeth. That's the way it works. You'll speak well of them. They will slander you. You'll, you'll, you'll be kind to them. They won't be kind in return. There'll be no gratitude. And what Paul's trying to arm the church for here is to say in all that, okay, my theology then is going to instruct the way I respond when I get that kind of blowback from a world that hates my Lord. And I'm not going to draw back from them. I'm not going to hate them. I realize this is between them and Jesus. I'm just the, the representative here. And that enables us, like Christ, to be nailed, if you will, to our own crosses and, and to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Paul wants us to shun the false premise that somehow we can be a Christian and we can be popular with friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. No, they will be pitted against Jesus and therefore they will be opposed to you even though they will respect you inwardly. You will not see it on the outward. They will know when you live like Christ. That is a very, very, very powerful thing. When people live like Christ and demonstrate grace and mercy and kindness to the unbelieving, even when they're rotten back. But don't expect them to applaud you. It's more likely they'll persecute you. Well, we need to move on. Persecution is normal for the follower of Christ. It is also personal in that people are after Christ, not you. And finally, suffering is profitable. And I want to give you just five rapid-fire benefits of suffering for Christ. I want to give them to you just in five words, and you can jot down. I'll give you, I'll give you five words and, and a, a passage, maybe two with each, all right? Number one, why is suffering profitable? Number one, evangelism. We saw this two weeks ago. I closed with it. Suffering for Christ motivates witness for Christ. Suffering for Christ motivates witness for Christ. We see that even in, 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 in Philippians chapter one. What does Paul say in verse 12? I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances, my hard circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. You see, evangelism was, was, was put on steroids because Paul was suffering. He saw that the church was bolder to preach because he was suffering. We saw this, as I said, a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 4, where the people pray, Lord, take note of their threats. You see the persecution that's coming. But they don't say, take note of their threats and please protect us as we hang out here together. They said, Lord, take note of their threats and enable that what? We would preach the word with boldness. Give us strength to not shrink back. Acts 8 Verses 1 to 4, Paul, Paul went out and persecuted the church, and we see that the church then, in response to all of that, were dispersed, and they went out preaching the word. They, they were dispersed like an intense wind, just blew the seed off the tree, and those seeds went out and planted churches all over that area. Another reason suffering is profitable Assurance, And we see that in our text as well, that suffering for Christ demonstrates salvation from Christ. Assurance. Verse 28 can't be put any plainer. He says, when, you're, when, you, when you are confronted by opponents, understand that that is a sign of destruction for them, but it is a sign of salvation for you. Again, suffering for Christ's sake is a badge that ought to say, I'm the real deal. My life is clear enough that it's causing some sort of pushback. My, my testimony for Christ is apparent because I am suffering like, like my Lord suffered. Yes, in a much smaller extent, but at the same time, like him. I don't know how many hockey fans there are in California, but it was the easiest, or the best I could do yesterday. The Stanley Cup playoffs are on, and, and it occurred to me, how, how does the hockey player, the professional hockey player, know that he's actually on the team and part of the battle? Well, you might say, if he's got a jersey, but I look in the stands and I can see all kinds of people in, 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 in jerseys, 
They're just fans. They pick their jersey up down at the store. There's all kinds of people who profess, if you will. How does a hockey player know? It's the blood on his jersey. It's the fact that his jersey's ripped. It's the fact that his muscles are sore from being checked into the boards. He looks in the mirror and grins and he realizes he's missing a couple teeth. He knows that he's, he's the real deal. Why? Because he's bearing those marks in his body. In fact, Paul says that very thing. He says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Listen to Romans 8, 16 and 17. The spirit testifies himself with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be also glorified with him. Do you see how part of the Holy Spirit's testimony that you are in fact a child of God comes through the fact that you suffer with Christ? 1 Peter 4.14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. The next time you take a blow in the name of Jesus, you catch some flack for your faith. The first thing that ought to come to your mind, Lord, thank you for the confirming evidence. This is, this is I'm yours and you're mine. It's great stuff. Thirdly, sanctification. Suffering for Christ creates likeness to Christ. Suffering for Christ creates likeness to Christ. God has always purified his people through suffering. Hebrews 2 speaks of Jesus. In verse 10, Jesus, the author of our salvation, who was, get this, sanctified through sufferings to bring us to glory. Christ suffered. And it was that very same Christ who said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Hebrews 12 and verse eight, if we are without discipline, that's another word for the hard lessons we learn in this life as God brings them into our life so that we might grow. He says, if we're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, every believer is a partaker, everyone in the family of God is under the disciplining and chastening hand of God. He says, if, if, if you haven't become a partaker, then you're just an illegitimate child. You're not a son. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. What's the point? He disciplines us. He sanctifies us through it. God has always stripped and sanded his people through the sufferings so that they would conform us to the likeness of Christ. There's a fourth word, fellowship. Suffering for Christ deepens our relationship with Christ and it can't be otherwise. You, you understand this. We understand this in a, in a worldly sense. You send a bunch of soldiers into war and they suffer all the trials that, that battle brings and they come back. They're a band of brothers. They're tight-knit. And that usually lasts throughout life. My, my wife has grown more precious to me over the 33 years of marriage. Why? We've crossed some hurdles together. We've been through the, the, the trials together. And that brings value and intimacy to a relationship. And so it is here. 
that when we suffer for Christ's sake, we grow nearer to him. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In Colossians 1.24, such an amazing statement, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body in filling up what is lacking in his afflictions. You hear what he's saying? He's not saying that the afflictions of Christ were insufficient. No, the atonement was accomplished by Jesus. It is finished. But the world still wants to give Jesus a few more lashes. And since he's no longer here, you've got to go after the body. And we're filling up those sufferings. Like I said, this is personal. And so when you suffer slander, you suffer slander for Jesus' sake. And when you're in prison, you're the Lord's prisoner. And you, when you suffer, whatever the loss is, you can look at it and go, Lord, I would gladly bear that on your account. I know what you've done for me. And it becomes an act of worship. That's, that's why I say, I, I think of Paul writing those words when he says, I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus. What was he saying? All the stuff that we know Paul went through. And he looked at the scars on his body. Those are Christ's scars. They're the brand marks of Jesus. And through those sufferings, what? Just like Christ, rather than reviling in return and rather than slandering and speaking evil, what do we do? We learn to entrust ourselves to him who judges righteously. We learn to go to the Lord in our sufferings and we pray and we see our great high priest who's experienced all of that and he says, I know. Because the pain is real, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> I know. And our fellowship grows. But it not only grows with Christ, it grows with one another. Peter gives us these words at the end of his first epistle. He says, stand firm in your faith, listen to this, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished. Is it bad? I know it's bad. But understand this, stand firm knowing that it's bad for your brethren who are, who are in the world. It's being accomplished by them too. Well, there's a final word, and I'm sure there are more. You can work at that in your home fellowship groups tonight, but that final word is reward. The suffering for Christ will be rewarded by Christ. To the degree that we suffer for Christ's sake, we will be rewarded. Beloved, God misses nothing. Every discussion that's been had in a back room, speaking evil of you on Jesus's, for Jesus' sake, on his account, Every unkind word, every mocking laughter, every bit of, of, of that that you have caught because of your testimony of Christ, God heard it all, God saw it all, God is noting it all, you will be rewarded for it all. 
There is not one unkind word or condescending glance and not one painful rejection that the Lord does not know about. But beloved, our reward is not today, it is tomorrow. It is the cross today, it is the crown in heaven. It is tribulation here, it is rest there. That's why Jesus said, when you suffer for righteousness sake, understand that your reward in heaven is great. It is imperishable and it is cause for great rejoicing. What did Paul write in 2 Corinthians 4? This momentary light affliction is producing for us what? An eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Not only can it not be compared, there's just nothing that even comes remotely close. All he's saying is simply this, you will get there and you will never say, was it worth it? It was worth it. Beloved, let us anchor this thought. It is a blessing to suffer for Christ. And my prayer is that I and we would be more like the early followers of Jesus, like Peter and John after being flogged and imprisoned, rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. Like Paul and Silas, who after similar treatment in Philippi, what do we find them doing in the jail? Complaining? Asking for Motrin? They're rejoicing and they're singing hymns of praise. You don't think that spoke to the Philippian jailer? Didn't you find that intriguing that after, after the jail doors had opened and everybody was still there, the guy's ready to ram himself through with his sword. Paul says, don't do it. We're all here. And the first thing out of his mouth is, sheesh, okay, I give. How do I get saved? You guys are amazing. <laughs> yeah, you are because we serve an amazing God. We need to learn to cultivate the mentality that suffering is good, that it is a gift, that it is a reason for joy, that it is the highest of privileges. And there is no greater evidence of our fidelity to Christ than to be cursed for his name's sake. And I leave you again with this, beloved. Christ sees, he will never forget, and he will bless us in the end. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our suffering Lord and King Jesus, we thank you and praise you. You are the forerunner. You have surely gone before us. And Lord, you know how to suffer as no man has ever suffered or could ever suffer. We thank you for taking our sins upon the cross and all of the wrath that was due. We thank you, Lord, for your example of grace and mercy to those who persecuted you and unrelenting kindness a truthfulness that was unshakable. Lord, your glory was on full display along with your grace at the cross and we just stand in awe. We worship you. We honor you. And Lord, we ask for your grace and your forgiveness today for failing to embrace the cross that you have given us to carry. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful that we would remember that suffering is normal and that it is personal and that it is ultimately profitable, that you will reward us in the end. And Lord, help us to be faithful 
that we would shine our lights brightly, that we would be unashamed of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, that we would preach with boldness and love, with clarity and conviction, that we would live in a way that honors you and rightly upholds your gospel. And Lord, we ask that you might extend your hand to save others through our testimony as you did to us. Thank you for your kindness and for your love for us. We give you praise in Christ's name, amen.